From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. It's wonderful to be back with you. I hope you've had some downtime, some time for reflection, nourishment, good love, and some good self-care. And today I'm bringing to you a really special two-part episode on something that I think a lot of us probably enjoyed over the holidays, but maybe are rethinking a little bit right now. And that is alcohol, and specifically alcohol in relationship to our hormonal health across our life cycles. Alcohol is one of the world's best loved beverages and favorite mind-altering substances. Humans have been imbibing it for at least 10 millennia, the first booze dating all the way back to 7000 BCE in China. And we've had receptors for metabolizing the stuff before humans even stood up on two legs. Alcohol is embedded into the social fabrics and religious practices of cultures worldwide, and it's been used medicinally and even as a beverage when potable water wasn't available, for example, on long sea voyages where something like beer might have actually become the substitute for water as a regular beverage. We use alcohol to invoke the spirits in rituals, to make offerings, and as part of our community and family gatherings, and in daily and bigger life celebrations. And at the end of a long day or a long week, a relaxing drink can be something to look forward to. And no wonder, it gives us a major dopamine rush, which is why it initially makes us feel really good and makes us want more. But does drinking always or even usually leave us feeling great? And are there longer-term harms that, even if it does leave you feeling great, might outweigh the benefits of that immediate gratification and relaxation? After all, globally, alcohol use is the fifth leading risk factor for premature death and disability among people 15 to 49, and excessive alcohol consumption in the United States between 2011 and 2015 accounted for 93,296 deaths annually each of those years. That's about 255 deaths a day. And alcohol intake is the third leading preventable cause of death in the United States. So as we enter the new year, it's super common to reflect on, consider, and make decisions about which aspects of our lives we want to carry into this next year. It's also a really common time for folks to take a dry period, like dry January, especially after the holidays, which are commonly a time when we let it all go for a minute. It's also much more of an important topic than many might realize. Alcohol consumption starts young, including amongst our teenage daughters. Research has revealed that 22% of middle school girls and 50% of 12th grade girls have consumed alcohol 
sometimes in a moderate to even binge amount within 30 days of having been surveyed. Alcohol consumption went up substantially amongst women during COVID. And in general, as I'm going to talk about more in these upcoming episodes today and next week's, alcohol consumption actually has increased for women at a higher rate than in the past in the last seven or eight years. And alcohol rate for women has been going up well, it's actually been going down for men. And then there are also some really specific and concerning patterns that happen with shifts in our physiology in menopause that may make us more likely to develop problem drinking even at that stage in our life. A 2015 analysis by the scientists at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism found that longstanding gaps between how much men and women drink and the associated alcohol-related harms might be narrowing in the United States, with women drinking more days per month than in the past and the rate trending up. And as we all know, the pandemic led a lot of us to want to drink for stress relief at the end of the day. So is it possible that something that's been part of our history and pleasure for so long and has been touted to have such health benefits, especially red wine, could be, well, not so good for us? And are there important facts about how alcohol affects women and our hormones to consider or reconsider at various stages of our life cycles from puberty through our 20s to 40s, and in menopause, or if we're struggling with a hormone challenge like endometriosis, polycystic ovary syndrome, or fertility. That's exactly what I'll be exploring with you today on this latest episode of On Health, where we'll talk about the unique effects of alcohol, not only directly on women's hormonal heart and bone health, but also on our moods, gut health, microbiome, and circadian rhythm all of which have an impact on our total and hormonal health as well. We'll talk about how much a drink really is, how alcohol impacts us at different ages. And if you're going to drink, in part two, we're going to talk about what you can do to minimize the impact and possible damage with various types of alcohol that you might choose, amounts, and a few specific tips and supplements that have a body of evidence to support them in prevention of alcohol-related risks, including breast cancer, which we'll also discuss. Whether you intend to continue to enjoy your glass of wine to relax each evening, are having a sober, curious moment, are considering or actually taking a break from drinking right now, or just want to know everything you can know to keep your brain, hormones, gut, and heart healthy, this episode will give you food for thought and some important information to consider as you reflect intentionally on whether to include alcohol in your lifestyle at all, and if so, how much is really okay to drink and for you to drink. It's not about judging your choice whatsoever. I enjoy a drink once in a while also. It's about helping you find what's best for you with the information that can help you answer these questions and realizing that this is a question to continue to ask ourselves throughout our life cycles because our ability to metabolize and enjoy alcohol and have it be safe for us evolves over different phases of our life and it's different based on your unique body and health. Many of us drink because we do like the feeling we get when we're slightly buzzed. We feel more relaxed, more socially comfortable, even socially braver. 
And many of the common troubling daily anxieties most of us know all too well fall away when we feel more relaxed in that state of being slightly inebriated. But most of us also recognize that we don't feel that great after a night of drinking. We feel more blue or depressed, foggy, irritable. We might feel kind of puffy in our fingers or our face or, you know, just kind of generally. And then we wonder why we drank at all. And as we get older, that might include wondering if that half a glass of wine was really that good for us. Unlike in past decades where pressure to drink in social settings was high, it's actually now just as cool to say you're not drinking, that you're sober curious, or that you're sober. And if that's the case for you, as it is for so many, congratulations. If you're struggling, hang in there because I know so many wonderful people who have crossed that river and are living happily and healthily sober on the other side. I hope that by the end of this episode, you feel empowered to make the most informed decisions possible about drinking, and that it gives you the tools to not feel pressured to drink ever if you don't want to. And even if you do want to, you'll figure out how to know whether it's the best choice for you. And it'll help you to drink with more control in ways that protect your health to the best extent possible if you do. First, let's define some basics like what is alcohol and what constitutes a drink, because a pour is not just a pour. When we're talking about the alcohol that we drink as a beverage, we're referring to ethanol, E-T-O-H, a volatile organic liquid that's produced by the natural fermentation of sugars. Alcohol is water and fat soluble, and since our cells are made of water and fat, Alcohol is easily and readily absorbed into virtually all cells in our body. And there's no nicer way to put it. Alcohol and its breakdown products act as cellular toxins, including to our brain cells, where these products of alcohol breakdown can cross the blood-brain barrier and enter. Alcohol not only affects our moods and behaviors, think impulsivity, but affects our brain's hormonal signaling. And this is significant because ovarian, thyroid, and adrenal gland function all start in the brain, in the hypothalamus and the pituitary to be exact. Weirdly, as Andrew Huberman describes it, the feeling of being inebriated is the byproduct of being exposed to the poison acetyl alcohol, which is the major metabolic product of alcohol breakdown. And because it is able to cross the blood-brain barrier, which is what makes us feel tipsy or drunk, it affects areas of the brain especially the frontal cortex, which is where our executive function control center lives. And with it, it reduces our social inhibitions. We might talk louder, speak more freely without as much thought, or act more impulsively. And it also affects our memory storage, so we might not even be able to fully remember what we did or said. And get this, the reduction in our inhibitions may not only lead to impulsive behaviors in the moment, but may increase impulsivity negatively even when we're not drinking. But we'll save the brain impacts of alcohol for another episode. Today, I want to focus on hormonal impacts, how alcohol affects our menstrual cycles, fertility, menopause, and also how various life cycles affect our alcohol intake and tolerance. We'll also talk about the relationship between alcohol and PCOS, endometriosis, and breast cancer. 
So what qualifies as a drink is really important. One, because it's easy to drink a lot more than you think you are. A poor and a defined amount are very different. But also because the effects of alcohol are related to the amount that you ingest. So knowing how much you're really drinking is actually important. In the United States, a drink is defined as 12 ounces of beer, 5 ounces of wine, or one and a half ounces of hard liquor. Any of these in the U.S. delivers about 14 grams of alcohol per serving. This varies per country based on different types and concentrations of alcohol and the sizes of the pour. So for example, a beer is slightly less alcohol in Japan where it might be 9 grams instead of 12 grams. But if you get a pour that's 18 ounces, you still may be getting the same amount. So you see how the concentration varies, but then also the pour might be different. In Russia, according to studies that compare alcohol amounts and concentrations, one and a half ounces of hard liquor might be 25 grams of alcohol. It's also really important to know that men and women metabolize alcohol at different rates. So if you give a woman and a man of the same weight, the same amount of alcohol, over the same stretch of time, the woman will have a higher blood alcohol concentration and she'll get there much more quickly. Women also eliminate alcohol more slowly than men, so we may stay inebriated or feel the effects of that alcohol longer. The physiologic differences among others that we'll discuss contribute to women's higher susceptibility to alcohol-related liver disease, heart disease, negative impacts, not just on mood, but on brain health. And also we actually have a lower threshold to developing problems with alcohol and alcoholism. Because of this different intake tolerance, the established recommended upper limits of alcohol intake are lower for women than they are for men. So for women, moderate drinking is defined as less than or equal to one drink per day or less than or equal to three drinks on any single day, and less than seven drinks per week. Binge drinking is equal to or more than four drinks at any one time, and heavy drinking for females is more than three drinks per day, or more than seven drinks per week. Now, there are a number of things that are important to know about this. One is that you can drink moderately. Well, let's say you're a woman who drinks four drinks per week, and then you binge four drinks on the weekend. That's actually eight drinks per week. So that's heavy drinking. Let's say you're a college student. You don't drink all week at all. But then on Saturday and Sunday, you have four drinks each time. That's binge drinking and heavy drinking. It's also really important to remember that because of our lower tolerance, if you're keeping up with the boys while you're drinking, let's say you're, I'm just going to make this up, but you're in a drinking betting contest, you're going to get potentially drank under the table much more quickly at a much lower threshold. So if you're keeping up with other people who are drinking, your tolerance may be very different. And for many women, even the amounts that I've mentioned may be too much. As you'll learn, at different phases in our life cycles, we have different tolerances to alcohol. And certain ethnic groups, for example, Asians and Ashkenazi Jews, have genetic polymorphisms, differences in our genes, that profoundly reduce alcohol tolerance so that even a little feels like a lot. I am one of those people. 
I cannot tolerate alcohol. I never even drank. My first drink was in my late 30s. And I've had a very low tolerance. So, you know, for me, a quarter glass of wine and I'm buzzed a third of a gin and tonic and I am toast. Like I have to go lay down. So for me, it feels terrible to drink, which is why I don't drink very often. I'm not opposed to it. I just, again, no judgment here. For me, I have direct experience of being one of those people for whom these recommendations are completely irrelevant because any alcohol is basically too much for me. It's also important to recognize that women are more likely to be on the pill, hormone replacement therapy, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, and other medications, which haven't been adequately factored into the already very limited studies that have been done on women and alcohol. Alcohol may affect the metabolism of those drugs, meaning they may make those drugs more harmful for us may increase the blood levels of those drugs, which I'm going to talk with you about in relation to the pill and hormone replacement therapy, because there is a little bit of data on that and it's important. And also some drugs and alcohol consumption are not compatible together, but your doctor may not warn you about that or tell you about that. So it's always important if you're put on a prescription medication to either not drink during that time or really dig in and ask your provider or look it up on the internet, is alcohol safe with that pharmaceutical? So one question I get asked a lot is, hey, Dr. Aviva, but I thought drinking in moderation was good for you. And I want to address that. In her book, Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, former senior nutrition policy advisor in the Department of Health and Human Services for the United States, Marion Nestle, PhD, laid out how we were sold a bill of goods that alcohol is, and I'm doing air quotes here, good for us since the 1990s when it was called the French paradox. The French paradox is the idea that people in cultures where wine is taken daily with meals and where people eat, you know, tons of cheese, tons of fatty foods live longer. And yes, there are some cultures in which alcohol consumption is part of daily life and people live well and live into their 90s. But the common denominator in those cases is not the alcohol. It's a complex set of factors, including diet, living in community, eating in community, daily walking, sometimes for miles at a time, sometimes on rough terrain up and down hills or mountains, and specific anti-aging polyphenols that have been identified in the foods and the beverages that people are ingesting in these cultures, which are more likely to have greater longevity and greater health span, not just lifespan, but health span. So living well as we live older. So for example, studies have found that milk and cheese from animals that are grazing on hillsides that grow certain types of rosemary and other herbs, when the animals break those down, these polyphenols, these protective plant chemicals, these antioxidant plant chemicals are moved into the milk. And then when that milk is consumed or turned into cheese, and eaten that way, we're getting those. And those are found in very specific regions in Greece, Italy, and a few other places. The French paradox became the justification for massive branding campaigns used by the alcohol industry in the U.S. to revitalize wine sales, which it did to the tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars. Incidentally, foie gras sales also went up during that time. And the thing is that even though Marion Nestle called the French paradox out completely as a hoax with all the evidence to support that, 
The concept of red wine being good for us stuck and has persisted. And with that extended from it has been this idea that alcohol in general in moderate amounts is actually healthful. Yes, wine and spirits are a common part of daily life in many parts of the world. And like I said, they have been for 10 millennia. What's truly astonishing is given how much people drink in how many places around the world and also the number of women that drink. Alcohol intake has really only been subjected to two randomized control trials that are a year or longer in length. So our understanding of its health effects remains incredibly limited. A safe amount has not been established and there's no healthy amount. It's really more of a luxury, not a food or something meant for daily intake. And in fact, some experts challenge the view that there's a safe dose of alcohol at all and suggest abstaining completely for optimal health. So are there any positive effects of alcohol? Well, there are a couple of studies that do show some small increased longevity And there are some studies that suggest that in small amounts in menopause, there may be some advantages for bone health and also insulin sensitivity. But as you'll learn, this data is counterbalanced by data on harms. What about resveratrol? Resveratrol has been touted as this amazing anti-aging miracle compound that's found in red wine. The idea behind resveratrol is that it acts as an antioxidant and a cellular protectant. And in fact, as part of our foods, it probably does. But the data on whether taking a resveratrol as a supplement for anti-aging or cellular protection or health and getting it from red wine is not convincing whatsoever. What we do know is that getting a wide variety of plant polyphenols, these antioxidant healthful compounds from our food, is very helpful. So resveratrol alone can be found in grapes, peanuts, cocoa, blueberries, and cranberries, for example. So eating those foods has all the health benefits without any of the risks of alcohol. There's also literally no study that can prove that drinking in any amount is more healthful than not drinking at all. And for women, having even just one to three drinks per week, and when I say drinks, I mean in the measured out amounts I've told you, has been implicated in some specific health risks. For example, a recent study published in the journal Nature Communications found that even moderate alcohol intake, that's one to two drinks daily, and for women that would be one, can cause adverse changes in brain structure and brain connectivity. So the connections between our neurons and how they fire and provide information to different parts of our brain and our body. These findings are consistent with research on early middle-aged adult moderate drinkers that showed smaller brain volumes associated with moderate alcohol consumption in men and women. And other studies have shown that drinking just one to three drinks per week does increase women's risk of breast cancer. Overall, good quality research on women, alcohol, and hormones, and health is scant. Where we do have data, it's wildly contradictory due to differences in study sizes, study quality, whether women's hormones or life cycle phases were adequately addressed, and some other factors that I'm going to talk about. 
So we have to extrapolate from what we know from the research that does exist and importantly, use this in conjunction with our own inner awareness and paying attention to our hormonal sixth vital sign, our signals that our body gives us throughout our menstrual cycles and throughout our life cycles, asking ourselves honestly, how does this really make you feel? And if it feels good when you drink it, but doesn't feel good after, or you're having symptoms that might be associated with alcohol consumption, is it worth it? And how can you moderate and find that balance that works for you? And we need to be at least knowledgeable about the potential hidden harms of drinking so that we can make the best choices for ourselves. That said, before we dive into all the pros and cons, and there are definitely going to be more cons, I'm just kind of giving you that warning up front. For most otherwise healthy women with low risk for the problems that alcohol is most likely to cause, which I'm going to dig into, one to two drinks per week in the pore sizes I've mentioned is probably not a problem at all. And as I mentioned, if you're wondering if I drink at all, I have a drink once in a while, rarely more than once a month. I can go months without drinking and then might have, you know, a holiday month like where I have a drink at Thanksgiving and a drink at solstice or new year. But for me, it's extremely rare. Not so much because I know the data, though that too, because as I mentioned, drinking alcohol truly makes me feel terrible, probably based partly on my own ethnic background and also now being in menopause. So let's talk about alcohol and our hormones. The hormones I'll focus on in this two-part podcast series are estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. But I'll also touch on cortisol and insulin as well as thyroid hormone because these all strongly influence not only our well-being, but our overall female hormone production and reproductive cycles. Hormones are chemical messengers that control and coordinate the functions of all tissues and organs in our body. Each hormone is secreted from a particular gland. A gland is just a hormone secreting organ in our body. And then that hormone is distributed throughout the body. It goes into the bloodstream and it gets distributed throughout the body to act on tissues at different sites. Two areas of the brain, the hypothalamus and the pituitary, release hormones, as do glands in other parts of our body, like the thyroid, the adrenals, the ovaries, and the pancreas. The proper functioning of all of our body systems relies on the finely tuned release of hormones in the proper amounts and the health of the cells that receive those hormones on the other end so that the chemical signaling that's supposed to happen can trigger the functions that those hormones and cells are responsible for, which in the bigger picture includes things like the production and use of energy, like glucose and insulin being produced for that, growth and reproduction, things like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, bone and brain health, heart health, weight and metabolism, and more. Alcohol has been shown to alter and impair the functions of the hormone-releasing glands, as well as that of the target tissues. Animal studies have shown that acute alcohol administration affects the release of hormones from the pituitary and hypothalamus. Several studies point to an alcohol-induced rise in natural and also synthetic levels in women. And this is due to an increased rate of the conversion or aromatization of testosterone to estrogens in our bodies, 
to a decreased rate of oxidation or breakdown of the more potent form of estrogen, estradiol, to estrone. So we have more circulating estradiol. And interestingly, with the synthetic estrogens, alcohol is impacting the liver. So that's why we're not breaking the estradiol down to estrone as well. But it also means we're not breaking down the synthetic estrogens as well. So those are accumulating as well. Moderate alcohol consumption has also been linked in some studies to decreased progesterone levels in premenopausal women and to increases in DHEAS, which is a precursor to testosterone, and also to testosterone levels. So to sum that up, some studies, though not all, and we'll talk more about this, have shown increases in estradiol, increases in synthetic forms of estrogen, decreases in progesterone, and increases in testosterone levels. And this is also really interesting. It's not just if you're taking synthetic forms of hormone that are estrogen-based. Something happens when we drink alcohol and take progestin-based. So if you're taking a birth control pill that's mostly progestin or has progestins in it, or if you're taking progestin for hormone replacement therapy, alcohol changes the way progestins interact with the estrogens. And so that also can lead to increased estrogen levels. So we know that there's something happening and we're going to talk more about, well, who is this happening to when and how much can we rely on this information? And also just because those levels are going up or down, does that make a difference? Before we do that, I want to say that we also have to take the impact of alcohol on our total inner ecosystems into account. Because our hormone health doesn't occur solely in the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. Our gut, our circadian rhythms, metabolism, our hepatic detoxification pathways, these are all also involved in our hormone health and our hormone levels, our menstrual cycle regularity, our ease through menopause, and in the underlying factors that may be contributing to PCOS fertility challenges, endometriosis, worse menopausal symptoms, worse period symptoms, and more. So let's start with circadian rhythm. Alcohol is a known circadian rhythm disruptor. Your circadian rhythm, which I talk about extensively in my books, Hormone Intelligence and the Adrenal Thyroid Revolution, and in other podcasts, is a centrally controlled timekeeping system located in a part of the hypothalamic gland called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the SCN. And its job is to synchronize biological rhythms, so our own rhythms, in response to external cues, such as daylight and nighttime, and then convert these cues into neuronal and hormonal signals that affect the body's physiologic and metabolic processes, including the flow of our hormonal activities like when we ovulate, menstruate, produce and utilize estrogen, progesterone, insulin, cortisol, etc. Acute drinking, even just a glass of wine for some women, can act as a significant enough circadian rhythm disruptor to noticeably affect a good night's sleep, as can chronic, regular, moderate drinking. Sleep and hormone health are inextricably intertwined. Bad sleep, not good hormone balance. Even having just a couple of drinks also raises cortisol levels measurably within a few hours of drinking. Heavy and binge drinking 
can all throw your circadian rhythm into total chaos. So one of my first recommendations in my medical practice for women struggling with sleep challenges or hormonal problems, ditch the alcohol. And interestingly, when it comes to sleep problems, red wine seems to come up as one of the biggest culprits in sleep disturbance. Alcohol also affects our gut health in numerous ways. And as I also talk about in Hormone Intelligence and in other podcast episodes, your microbiome powerfully influences your hormone health. Alcohol-induced changes in the composition and functioning of the microbiome can happen acutely with small amounts of alcohol and can definitely happen with regular chronic amounts of alcohol intake and heavy drinking and binge drinking can have a major impact on your gut microbiome. Alcohol-induced changes also cause something called intestinal hyperpermeability or leaky gut, which can cause chronic systemic inflammation. Both dysbiosis, the disturbances in your gut microbiome levels and types of organisms that are growing that can be caused by alcohol and other factors, and leaky gut, have been implicated as possible underlying or contributing causes of polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, endometriosis, depression, anxiety, sleep problems, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and dementia. Alcohol also negatively affects liver function, which leads to disruption in the breakdown and elimination of estrogen, as I mentioned, one of the major reasons that studies show that moderate to heavy drinking plays a major role in elevated estrogen levels. Alcohol is also pro-inflammatory, both through its direct toxicity to our cells, leading to oxidative stress, through inflammatory reactions in the liver that affect liver function, and through it causing leaky gut. Inflammation, like leaky gut and microbiome disruption and like circadian rhythm disruption, is associated with a number of hormonal problems, just a few including menstrual pain, depression, anxiety, PMS, endometriosis, PCOS, migraines, infertility, menopausal symptoms, diabetes, heart disease, and again, dementia. Both hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, and hyperglycemia, elevated blood sugar, are associated with not just hormonal problems like not ovulating, fertility problems, and PCOS, but also anxiety, depression, diabetes, heart disease, and dementia. If you want to know more about the role of blood glucose in our overall health, please listen to my wonderful episode with Jess Inchow's The Glucose Goddess to learn all things there. Alcohol has a complex relationship with blood sugar and insulin. On the one hand, several studies have looked at the impact of alcohol intake on blood sugar balance. And interestingly, light to moderate drinking in a few studies has been found to be antihyperglycemic or blood sugar lowering in its effects. For example, an Israeli study found that one glass of wine per day, red or white, reduced fasting blood sugar by almost 20 milligrams per deciliter. A 2005 meta-analysis of 15 cohort studies also found a decreased risk for diabetes among light to moderate drinkers, and a meta-analysis of 14 studies found that in non-diabetic individuals compared with others, alcohol consumption was associated with reduced hemoglobin A1c, which is a measure of blood glucose health over three months, and fasting insulin concentrations in women, although this was not found consistently. A randomized crossover trial in 51 postmenopausal women found that compared with no alcohol consumption, 
30 grams of alcohol per day, which is two drinks for eight weeks, lowered serum insulin levels while leaving glucose levels unchanged, thus improving insulin sensitivity and triglyceride levels also decreased during that time. A couple of things. One, no matter what, even if there were some small benefits, the two drinks a day is far too much to drink. And we also have to keep in mind that clinical trials are influenced by the fact that people who drink wine, particularly on a regular basis, are more likely to be white, educated, upper middle class, have better access to health care and better dietary and exercise habits. And those are not factored in to the benefits. There have been a couple of more benefits. And one of the factors that it's thought that clinical trials showing positive effects on glucose are based on is the fact that studies have shown that light to moderate drinking is associated with higher levels of something called adiponectin. This is a fat cell produced hormone which directly improves insulin sensitivity. But the effects of alcohol intake on blood sugar aren't all good. The brain depends on glucose for energy. And alcohol, in the short term and the long term, interferes with the brain getting adequate amounts of energy. And that's both immediately with drinking and after drinking, and also with binge drinking. Even brief periods of low blood glucose levels, hypoglycemia, can actually damage the brain. Severe hypoglycemia can occur just 6 to 36 hours after a binge drinking episode. Drinking without eating further aggravates this, and even in well-nourished people, alcohol can disrupt blood sugar levels. Conversely, heavy drinking is associated with a direct risk factor for diabetes because it leads to hyperglycemia, or chronically excessively elevated blood sugar. Alcohol is also an anti-nutrient, meaning that it not only provides no nutrition, although it does provide calories, it uses up important nutrients like B vitamins and detoxification chemicals like N-acetylcysteine, NAC, in the process of mopping up alcohol-induced cellular toxicity. And that happens with any amount of drinking to some extent, and much more with regular or heavy and binge drinking. Alcohol has multiple effects on the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, as well as the functioning of the thyroid gland itself. In alcoholics, significant suppression of T4 and T3, the primary thyroid hormones, has been found, likely due to liver damage, as T4 is converted to the active form T3 in the liver, as well as due to direct damage to the thyroid gland, where T4 is produced, as is T3 to a lesser extent. It's unclear how much the thyroid is impacted by moderate alcohol intake or binge drinking, and there's no data that I could find on this, but we do know that thyroid function is critically important for our overall well-being, physically, mentally, cognitively, and also for hormone regularity when it comes to reproductive health. The data in general is really, really tricky to understand. Even as an MD deeply trained in reading and analyzing research papers, the conflicting information is enough to make me have to read and reread multiple times to just make sense of it. Just how much we have to drink to impair our cellular function, our microbiome, our circadian rhythm, etc., is really complex. And just how much and in what direction increased or decreased various hormones gets impacted by alcohol is also really complex and contradictory. 
Why is the data so variable? There are a number of reasons, some of which I've already mentioned. It's really difficult to compare alcohol amounts with studies done in different countries or with a wide variety of beverages. So in some studies, women are told, okay, drink red or white wine, like that Israeli study. But in some studies, it's just retrospectively looking at, or women are just told to drink XYZ glasses of alcohol a day, and it's not really specified. Also, the studies don't specify how many grams of alcohol women were getting in those drinks, or, you know, and that again can vary by what country. The other thing is that many of the study conditions don't match real life drinking conditions. In many studies, women are asked to drink far more than most women typically do in one setting, far more than the upper limit recommended amounts over an extended period of time. So for example, two to three glasses of night over three months. And when women are asked to participate in these studies, they're often asked to fast overnight, for example, before or after drinking. So very few of us fast for 12 hours or eight hours or six hours before we then go and drink or drink three drinks of alcohol, which even just from thinking about that, right? Like if you fasted, if you had nothing to eat all day and then you had two or three glasses of wine, you're probably going to feel that. You're not going to feel great from that. But you can imagine that may also cause more stress in the body and may have more of a hormone impact than just having a glass or three of wine a week with your normal lifestyle patterns. It's also really important to emphasize that even if there are some shifts in hormone levels, these don't necessarily represent the complexity of what's happening in the reproductive hormonal system. And small hormone shifts also don't necessarily represent anything clinically meaningful. That means we can have small shifts in our hormone levels. These happen all the time, but that doesn't necessarily translate to developing medical or health problems or even hormone imbalances or menstrual cycle or other imbalances as a result. So in these two episodes, I'm going to break all of this down by life cycles, which generally coincides with similar age ranges for females, right? We typically go into menopause within a narrow age range. We go into puberty within a narrow age range in our 20s and 30s. We're in our 20s and 30s. So I'm going to address these different life cycles, how alcohol is thought to impact those different life cycles and how those different life cycles also impact our alcohol consumption. All the while, I'm going to give you my interpretations of what to do with all of the information so you can make the best decisions for yourself. So for the rest of this episode, I'm going to talk about alcohol and puberty and alcohol and our menstrual cycles. In the next episode, so in the second part of this, I'm going to talk about alcohol and fertility endometriosis, PCOS, menopause, and breast cancer. So here we go. Alcohol and puberty. Little research is available on the physiologic effects of alcohol consumption during puberty. And what has been done really hasn't focused on human females. Some of it's been done in rat studies. Some studies done on teens and young women do show that moderate to heavy drinking and binge drinking can interfere with the onset of puberty and also with the establishment of regular menstrual cycles, which can then persist as irregular menstrual cycles after puberty because we just don't establish getting regular. And also when the onset of puberty is interfered with, bone development and even the growth spurt may be interfered with. 
This is thought to be due to interference with something called the pulsatile secretion of a hormone called GnRH. It's hypothalamic gonadotropin releasing hormone. This is something that is released from the hypothalamus. It comes on during puberty, but then it persists through the rest of our menstrual cycle lifespan. And it remains pulsatile. So it's not being produced and released in a steady amount. It, it goes in these pulses. When that pulsatile hormone secretion starts, that triggers puberty to start. And it stimulates the synthesis and release of follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone by the pituitary gland. The follicle-stimulating hormone is what stimulates the ovaries to get those follicles mature. And then one follicle gets mature and releases an egg, and that's ovulation. Luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone are present primarily in the first half of the menstrual cycle. And luteinizing hormone peaks right before ovulation. It is accompanied by a big peak in estrogen, and that's what kind of triggers the ovary to release the egg. In puberty, drinking may hijack the hypothalamus and not allow that pulsatile signaling to come on properly. It may impact glucose levels that may also have an impact on the hypothalamus. And another thing may happen, which is that it may cause peaks in higher levels of estrogen, which may interfere with ovulation and menstrual cycle regularity. One study found, though, that estrogen levels were depressed amongst adolescent girls ages 12 to 18 for as long as two weeks after drinking moderately. So that suggests possibly the fact that the hijacking of the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis is just preventing FSH and LH from stimulating ovulation, stimulating that peak in estrogen, and it's just not coming on at all. So ovulation just isn't happening. Estrogen's role in bone maturation also raises the question of whether alcohol use during adolescence has long-term effects on bone health. Alcohol consumption in adolescents and teens is known to affect growth and body composition. And in addition to all the factors that I've mentioned that may be associated with that, teens who drink may also have interference in their healthy food intake patterns. So they may actually be consuming less healthful foods. I would say the good news is that one, knowing this, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this, we really need to be talking about this with our teens and not assuming they're not drinking. Remember, 22% of middle school girls, 50% of high school 12th graders reported drinking in the 30 days prior to the study. And it's very common for teens to not drink all week long and then suddenly binge drink on the weekends. And not only does that affect all of these metabolic and hormonal parameters, but it puts them at risk in disinhibition and alcohol consumption does increase our girls' risks of um, sexual assault. So I was going to say the good news, though, is that in addition to realizing that we need to talk with our girls, a lot of alcohol-induced changes have been shown to be reversible. So even in alcoholics, bone changes, including toxicity to bone cells, has been shown to be reversible. The issue is this really hasn't been studied in teens when bones are still forming. So right in adult alcoholics, the bones are already formed. There's more risk of osteoporosis and osteopenia, which we'll talk about in menopause in part two. But with bone formation, it's a different conversation. So we just don't know.
So what about alcohol and our menstrual cycles after puberty? As a quick reminder, we begin to menstruate between 10 and 16 years old, with most of us beginning between ages 12 and 14 years old. The menstrual cycle occurs roughly every 24 to 35 days in otherwise healthy women in our reproductive years. It has two main phases, the follicular phase and the luteal phase. The follicular phase begins with the first day of the period, that's day one of the menstrual cycle, and ends with ovulation. The follicular phase is characterized by relatively steady levels of estrogen with an increase in estrogen just before ovulation when an ovum is released. And again, it's also during that phase that follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone are elevated. And then the luteal phase, which typically lasts 14, give or take two days long, follows ovulation and is characterized by rising progesterone and estrogen levels. And it's a phase that's progesterone dominant compared to the first half of the menstrual cycle where there's very little progesterone. In females, alcohol use, even in amounts insufficient to cause major organ damage, may disrupt the delicate balance necessary for maintaining healthy menstrual cycles. Alcohol use in premenopausal women, so in our you know teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, even in moderate amounts, has been linked in some studies to irregular menstrual cycles and ovulation, so not ovulating, early menopause, and early onset of hot flashes before menopause. One study estimates that 60% of heavy drinkers experience some menstrual cycle disruption, but even up to 50% of moderate or social drinkers have disturbances in their reproductive hormones and their menstrual cycles compared to occasional or non-drinkers. However, The data on how much alcohol intake specifically causes what hormone imbalances is wildly variable and inconsistent. And some studies, particularly with light to moderate alcohol intake, show no shifts in follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, menstrual cycle length or regularity, or changes in menstrual cycle health or ovulation at all. And I'm going to talk more about some studies that do show changes when I talk about fertility in part two. One major study involving premenopausal women looked at 34 women across six consecutive menstrual cycles. They were randomized to two groups and a crossover design was used. The women drank 30 grams of ethanol each evening for three consecutive cycles. So that's more than two drinks based on what we've talked about each evening for two consecutive cycles and no alcohol for the other three. That's the crossover. They do one intervention in one part of the cycle of the study and another intervention in the other. All food and alcohol were provided by the study. So that was consistent. Blood work showed that alcohol consumption was associated with a rise in plasma levels of DHEAS, remember that's the precursor to testosterone during the follicular phase, estrone, estradiol, and urinary estradiol around ovulation, and urinary estrone, estradiol, and estriol in the luteal phase. So basically what that means is that we saw a rise in testosterone precursor in the early part of the menstrual cycle. All forms of estrogen were increased around ovulation and all forms of estrogen were increased in the second half of the cycle. In another study, estradiol levels were measured twice in women over a 12-month span of time. Women with consistently high serum estradiol levels 
had also had a higher alcohol intake during that time. That alcohol intake was about 93 grams a week, so a pretty high amount. Whereas women whose intake was one third of that had much lower serum estradiol levels. Similar findings, though, looking at a kind of similar model, did not replicate that at all. And in other studies, no variations in estrogen levels were found. But the drinking patterns in some of these is unclear. So for example, in one study where no changes in estrogen levels were found, women drank less than 51 grams of alcohol a week. And that's consistent with other studies that have shown low estrogen changes with lower alcohol consumption. One study also found higher levels of alcohol-induced estrogen elevation in women on oral contraceptives. Again, this is thought to be due to alcohol's impact on hepatic metabolism of estrogen and also that enzyme that's induced by synthetic progestins causing higher levels of estradiol. So keep in mind that if you're taking a birth control pill, that may increase the ante on you actually having higher estrogen levels if you're drinking lightly, moderately, or more heavily. One question a lot of women ask, especially when cycle syncing is so popular, and I want to say something just quickly about cycle syncing, and I'll talk about this in another episode of the podcast down the road. Cycle syncing is a totally made up thing. There's a particular person who branded the idea of cycle syncing as part of branding and selling books and supplements to you. And so I'm not a fan of getting fixated on cycle syncing because a lot of the data that is shared about cycle syncing is exaggerated. And also, I think it's really important for us to not get reductionistic about our menstrual cycles. You may be somebody who loves exercising really hard before your period. You may be training for an Olympic event before your period. So, you know, this idea that you can cause more harm to yourself before your period that may be overstated. And I don't think, you know, we can all just sort of plan our lives around our menstrual cycles. That said, I've spent 40 years paying attention to my menstrual and hormonal cycles and have taught and taught about this for 40 years in a not branded way. And I do think that paying attention to our cycles, knowing our unique cycles, knowing what things support our menstrual cycles or may negatively impact our menstrual cycles is really important. But you might hear things like, you know, if you're cycle syncing, you should only drink around this point in your cycle and that point in your cycle not drink. And there's literally no data to confirm that women's alcohol intake should be varied across the menstrual cycle. There's also no evidence to support that we want to drink more or less around different phases of our menstrual cycle. Now, a lot of us might have the experience where we feel like, man, you know, that PMS just drives you to want to have that two glasses of wine. And that's an individual variation. But when we actually look at studies that have been done over 40 years of looking at the literature, it kind of all comes out in the wash. Some women want to drink more premenstrually, some around ovulation, and some studies show absolutely no difference whatsoever. One study did report that women may eliminate alcohol differently and achieve lower blood alcohol levels during the luteal phase, possibly due to slower gastrointestinal transit time during that phase of the cycle. And that leads to lower alcohol absorption at that time. But what's really important is not to say, okay, well, if I'm going to have lower alcohol absorption during that time, I can drink more or drink, you know, more comfortably 
and still have lower blood alcohol levels. And the reason to not just jump to that is because one, it's going to be different for every individual. And two, drinking more in the post-ovulatory phase, that early luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, is the one time that drinking may also be associated with an impact on fertility. So again, not carte blanche to just go drink more during that time. Another study did suggest that the effect of alcohol on reproductive hormones may be most evident when gonadotropin levels are high. So follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone are gonadotropins. And it may be that when those are elevated, heavier drinking during that time may induce higher rises of estrogen, reduce estrogen breakdown, and may impair ovulation. It would truly take days to review all of the literature on menstruation with you. And even if I did, honestly, we'd still be left scratching our heads as to what's really happening. So I'll suffice it to say that with moderate, heavy, and binge drinking, something is definitely going on with our hormones, and it's generally not good for us. But what's my summary on drinking in general? First, we really do need to start educating our daughters young on the potential long-term consequences of drinking at all, moderate, heavy, and binge drinking. And if they are going to drink, teach them how to drink responsibly and more safely and protectively for their health. This may sound really controversial and horrible, but the fact is I shared the data with you, right? More than 20% of our girls are already drinking in middle school. And this kind of education is commonly done in European countries. And I know this, I've seen this in like real life because my husband spent 10 years teaching in an international school. So I've been at many parties where 16-year-olds were responsibly having a beer or having some drinks and all the keys were put in a basket at the front door and nobody could leave if they'd been drinking. I mean, it just went that way. And these kids did fine. They did fine and they were safe. Along with that, I'm just going to put in a plug for talking with our girls and our sons about safer sex practices. This has also been studied as a common practice that it is in most European countries. And it's associated with healthier drinking, less drinking, less risky sexual behavior, lower levels of sexually transmitted infections, and lower levels of pregnancies and abortions. And remember, with teens, drinking and sex often go hand in hand. So really important conversations. For the rest of us who are a bit older in our 20s and beyond, the research data really suggests that you don't need to modify your drinking habits based on where you are in your menstrual cycle, provided that you're drinking lightly to moderately at the most. You may notice some personal variations in your cycle. For example, you may notice that your PMS symptoms create the desire to drink to help you relax, or that you may notice that your mood or your sleep is more affected by alcohol, for example, premenstrually, especially if you have PMS. So let those be your guide. Overall, when it comes to menstrual cycle regularity, ovulation, and menstrual health, one to three drinks per week is probably not going to affect your hormone balance or your menstrual health at all. However, I do still consider this on the high side for drinking every single week. And I recommend that all women who do drink, make sure you're getting a multivitamin with folic acid or methylfolate that protects against alcohol-induced DNA and methylation changes. And those have been especially associated with breast cancer risk with drinking 
and also potentially with the healthy formation of ova and fertility. And if you do have menstrual problems, PMS, painful periods, sleep problems, gut problems, keep in mind that alcohol can be affecting those in other ways than just through hormone levels. So we're going to talk about all of those other things in the upcoming episode. But if you're having menstrual cycle problems, consider alcohol one of the possible root causes or one of the possible contributing causes that you can modify, right? We can't easily change our genetics. We can't change what we inherit if we inherit certain risks, but we can modify even our genes by the things that we choose in our lifestyle, our diet, our sleep, and alcohol consumption being one of those. So think about that and remember you have the choice. All right, my dears, that's a lot so far. Stay tuned for next week's episode, part two, where I'm going to cover alcohol and all things women's hormone conditions, fertility, PCOS, endometriosis, what to know about alcohol and menopause, alcohol and breast cancer risk, and I'm going to talk about how to drink protectively if you do choose to continue to enjoy this ancient beverage in your modern life. I can't wait to continue this important convo with you. I'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.